This is Salt and Spine. I was watching all of these big food shows and I kept thinking, where are the women? Where are the women? No one is speaking to the women. There's no way that I cannot not tell these stories. There's no way that I I should write a cookbook just about Somalia or just about one thing when I can offer this opportunity to people who look like me all over Africa. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Hawa Hassan. Hawa is the founder of Bas Bas Sauce, a selection of condiments that are inspired by Somalia, the country where she was born. And as you'll hear in today's show, Hawa left Somalia in the midst of the country's civil war, first with her family to a refugee camp, and then to the United States. She built a life in the U.S., including a modeling career, and 15 years later, she reunited with her family for the first time. And through it all was food, the family foods she remembers from her childhood, the 7-Eleven snacks that she'd pick up in Seattle, the dinner parties that she'd host in New York City. And now she's here with a cookbook. Hawa joined us to talk about her first cookbook, In Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from the eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. Co-authored with Salt and Spine friend Julia Tertian, this book introduces us to grandmothers up and down the East African coast, from Somalia to Kenya, to Mozambique, to Madagascar. You'll find heartwarming stories and interviews with BBs from these eight countries and learn about the culinary histories of their families and their countries. And of course, recipes, 75 dishes that are both enticing and full of meaning. As Hawa writes in the book, this isn't just any old book with fun ideas of what to make for dinner, though you should make the recipes, they're great. It's also a collection of stories about war, loss, migration, refuge, and sanctuary. It's a book about families and their connections to home. There's so much community in this book and so many delicious recipes, and there are a few cookbooks published by major publishers today that focus on African cuisine. It's a glaring hole in the industry that we discuss in this episode, and it's partly why it's so powerful and inspiring to see these stories and recipes captured this way in In Bibi's Kitchen. Ahawa joined us recently to talk about her life, her career, and about creating this book, and of course, to play a little culinary game. Of course, we also have featured recipes from In Bibi's Kitchen for you to try at home. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Hawa Hassan joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Hawa. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're so thrilled to have you on Salt and Spine. I'm so excited to talk to you and to talk about your first book in BB's Kitchen, which I'm holding. It's beautiful. I just got it a couple of days ago and I've loved spending some time with it. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So we always like to start with our guests just by talking a little bit about you and your life and sort of how you came to where you are today before we spend a little more time talking about the book. So let's start sort of at the beginning. You were born in Somalia. Is that right? I was. I was born in the capital of Somalia, which is a city called Mogadishu. And you were born sort of right before, or sort of right at the cusp of the outbreak of the civil war there. Is that correct? Right. I was born in the late 80s, and the civil war took place in 1991. And so when the civil war broke out, your family, which I think at the time there were, you had three siblings or four siblings at that point? Correct. I love this. Um, <laughs> I had I had three siblings, and my mom was getting ready to have uh, the fifth child, my little sister Ayan. Okay, and so at that point, you left, you fled Somalia, and and went to a refugee camp in Kenya. Is that right? Yep. So in 1991, my family and I relocated to 
Nairobi and we did what many Somalis and Sudanese and Eritreans did. We went to a refugee camp in just right outside of Nairobi. And how long were you there? Just a little under a year. And so once my mother realized that sponsorship wasn't coming, sponsorship meaning documentation to go to the States, she decided it was a good idea for us to move to Nairobi proper, then have my brother and I go to school since we were the eldest. And yeah, so we weren't there long. So you were in the refugee camp for about a year. And then how long were you in Kenya? I was in Kenya until 1993. So uh, I left November 1993. And you're you're seven at the time when you leave Kenya. Do you have, which we'll talk about where you went in a second, but do you have memories of the time that you spent in Kenya or Somalia? Like, obviously you were pretty young. Do you remember much of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've been telling people lately on this on this like virtual book tour that, you know, childhood is different in other parts of the world. Um, a seven-year-old is expected to contribute very differently than a seven-year-old here. And so, you know, I remember being my mother's helper. I remember being the caretaker for my younger siblings as my mom, who was also very young herself, was stepping into a new role of being. She was, you know, going to work for the first time in her life. Uh, she was starting over in a country that she didn't speak the language in. And so, yeah, I, I I could tell you times where I had gone to the bathroom or like the, the public bathroom and stayed too long and everyone got scared. Like, I remember everything vividly from my mother cutting her hair to cooking together to my brother and I's first day of school in um, in a Kenyan school system. Wow. And, and your mother for a while, I think during that period was operating like a small store. Is that right? Yeah, she actually still owns it. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, it's So she rents it out now to another person. But my mother uh, has a gold store in Nairobi. And she ended up buying the whole building. And now she has rented it out to someone else. But yeah, for a while, she was selling gold once we moved to Nairobi proper. Wow. And, and you were sort of involved in that, right? As one of the older children? I wasn't really involved um, in the gold store. I, I was okay. just... I was the caretaker of the kids. But at that point, I spent a lot of time like, you know, life was getting back to normal for us because we were we had like everyday things happening. I was expected to go to school with my brother and my mother ended up getting a lot of help. And so she went to work. My brother and I went to school. The other kids stayed home. And I thought we were having a normal upbringing until 1993 when I had to leave. Sure. Do you have food memories from that period in your life? Were you cooking at that point? So in the the year that we were in the refugee camp, there was a lot of cooking that I was expected to do, which was just like boiling pasta water. So making the pasta, making the baris, which is our Somali rice. If it was like something elaborate, my mom and her friends did it. But like the small stuff, like making tea when company came over, I did that a lot of. So yeah, small things like that I, I remember doing for my mom and with my mom. But I, I didn't take over as like the head cook of the family. <laughs> sure. And and so then you're seven years old when you leave. And can you tell us about that experience, that process you left to go to Seattle? So I left in 1993, November of 1993 to head to Seattle, Washington. And I left under the terms that I was going to go ahead with this group of people who had space for a little girl in their family situation to come. And I was going to go and my family was going to follow. Sure. Um, I get to Seattle. I'm in elementary school at the time. And 
you know, it's snowing and I'm now seeing, you know, my friends are Vietnamese and they're Cambodian in 1993. There were a lot of countries that were in civil unrest. And so a lot of the people that were getting sponsorship to the U.S. were, you know, they were Cambodians, Vietnamese, uh, Eritreans, Somalis, Sudanese. And so that that was really the makeup of my classes in Seattle. And it wasn't until like maybe 96 when I was like, no one's coming. I better, I better get with the program and start creating a life here, uh, which I did. Yeah. And and no one was coming, meaning like your family was no longer sort of eligible or the opportunities sort of dried up for them to, uh, to come to Seattle as well. Right. So what happened in 1993 was that Somalia had, Somalia was then in conflict with America and then the Clinton administration ended up stopping all documentation that was being given to Somalis. And so while there was a pause on that, my mother decided that she, you know, she had no intentions on staying in Kenya long-term. So she remarried someone she fell in love with, who was a man who exchanged money at the, at the market. She sent him as a student to Norway, and then they were able to reunite in like 97 with my siblings and and her, he ended up getting them to Norway and they've been living there since. So after 1997, there was really no need to come to the U.S. So you're you're living in Seattle then, you're going to elementary school, you're starting to build your life there. Were you sort of a food person at that point as a child? Like some of us were always just drawn to food as children and some of us were sort of just like interested in just eating. Was food something you cared a lot about at the time? <laughs> no, I mean, I'd spent, no. like I'd had this like, incredible childhood where I was expected to go to my grandpa's house on the weekends while my parents traveled all over the world. And like, you know, an aunt would come from Egypt or my mom's younger sister would come from Holland. Our our aunt lived in Holland. And so we had this like life where, I mean, there's all sorts of stories of like my mom running on an airplane to get my brother because my dad was going to take him or my, my mom was going to take my brother to, to, to Russia, to Moscow, to have a surgery and my dad. So we'd had this, like, we'd had like a very big life. And I I was just a a kid in that. And by the time I was, you know, expected to like cook food and make tea for company, we were in civil unrest. Our lives were turning upside down. So it'd become this chore that was placed on me. And Uh so when I got to Seattle, I had this newfound freedom of like, oh my God, I don't have to cook. I don't have to wash dishes. <laughs> right. And I ran from that for years. You know, for me, food was really associate, associated with like being the eldest daughter and having to carry my weight in the family. And so once I arrived in Seattle and I realized that my friends were having Lunchables for school, I was like, I'm getting myself a Lunchable from Safeway. <laughs> I am, you know, I was, I discovered peanut butter and jelly sandwich Uh I, you know, the things I was making for myself were very much aligned with what the kids at school were eating. And I was just stoked to not have to be expected to cook or clean. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) I read one interview you did where you said you would often just get hot wings from 7-Eleven for dinner. Oh, my God. Yeah. I I mean, even now there is a, you know, if something happens and I'm having a difficult day, I can easily be taken back to that time of my life by having a hot dog and some Doritos. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. that's a type of comfort food for you, a particular uh-huh. genre. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So at that point, you're sort of you're not interested in food um, in the way that you maybe are today. And you're I think I'm getting this right, sort of nearing the end of high school when the not the idea, but perhaps like the opportunity to do some modeling starts to present itself. Is that right? And that sort of becomes a career path. Oh, yeah. So so I was really young for my I graduated just like right before being 16. Okay. And so by the time I was off to college, I was I was just about 16 years old. And so I had this whole career planned out for myself that I was going to be the very first Somali girl to play basketball in the WNBA. You know, I was going to like, I was going to like be close to Lisa Leslie. Like I had all these ideas for myself. And then I was like, if that fails, I will become a lawyer and I'll be an advocate for kids who have inadequate support system because that's who I am. And then my best friend, Devin, the end of senior year was going to go see a modeling agency in Seattle and said, you should come with me. You know, we'll, we'll go get sandwiches after. And I went with her and I was sitting in the lobby and this woman walked up to me and said, you should really consider modeling. I think it'd be great for you. And I went off to school and the idea just stayed with me, but I went back to them and I said, sure, you know, if it means I can model for what at the time was Bar Marche, which is now Macy's. Uh and Nordstrom's and Amazon in Seattle. I was like, that'd be great. And I did. And that really changed the trajectory of my life. It propelled me into a whole different world. And it gave me the opportunity to move to New York. And after a year and a half of doing it, they were like, you should really consider making this a career. And so, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but obviously I I packed up my luggage. (laughs) Yeah. And and moved to New York City and you... How long were you in New York? Or you're, I mean, you're still in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So I moved in, I moved October 3rd, 19 or October 3rd, 2005. I'll never okay. forget it. Okay. Why will you never forget it? Was it a particularly meaningful day for a particular reason? It was just meaningful in that, like I had visited New York once the agency had sent me here, um, okay. like a year and a half prior to that. And they were like, okay, like you should start getting ready. And I was like, okay, I'm going to save all of my modeling money. I'm going to do one more year of school and then I'm out. It really was the very first place where I had chosen to pick up and move. It wasn't like I was being sent somewhere. It wasn't like there was someone else expecting to receive me. And so when I packed up, I was like, there's no looking back. Like this will be home for the rest of, you know, for as long as I want it to be because I'm not returning to Seattle. There's nothing there for me. And at some point... While you're living in New York City, and I think modeling, you decide you're going to go um, to Norway to reunite with your family. Is that right? Yes. And so in 2008, my high school boyfriend, who I'd been with since I was 15, got the opportunity to live in Sylvania and work. And so it was the first time where I like went and got a visa and I was doing all these things. And, he, you know, we were going to our intentions were to spend that Thanksgiving together. And so I, I got there a little early and I was like, you know, you should know that Oslo is, you know, five hours away from Ljubljana. So I'm going to go and reunite with my family. And he was like, whoa, because up until yeah. then, like he was my only family. And so I'll never forget it. Thanksgiving, November of 2008, a few days prior, I boarded a flight. I went to Oslo and I reunited with my mother and siblings. <laughs> yeah. And it had been 15 years, right? Since you had separated? It it had been almost 15 years to the date because I had left 1993 November. 
And what was that? Had you been communicating with your family over that period of 15 years? Yeah. So over the years, we had lost touch. We'd gotten back in touch. We, you know, there wasn't, I mean, you can imagine like in the 90s, Skype was like in the late 90s, you know, it was like Skype and AOL dial up, like Skype came later on. Phone cards were, you know, super expensive. And so I, we didn't spend a lot of time just on the phone talking about our day to day lives, but after high school, I started to be more in contact with them. Um, and then when I got to New York, it was a lot more easier because there was Facebook and everything. And so we spent sure. a lot of time communicating on on our Facebook pages. And what was that reuniting like when you arrived in Oslo? Reuniting with my family was just, you know, home. It felt like I I never left. Um, we didn't skip a beat. My mother and I just fell into each other's arms and you know I she was pulling up and I started waving and she's like how did you know it was me I'm like you look just like me um and so I just reassumed my my position as the eldest daughter I was like everybody sit down be quiet do this (laughs) (laughs) Uh you know and and my sisters were like did she realize like there are other rules now and like she doesn't get to be in charge. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm so much like my mother in that like my siblings and I are just they're very European but like very much Somali upbringing and I'm very American with like Somali spiciness and so there was like a lot of clashes in the beginning but we didn't skip a beat. I mean, they're they're my best friends like if I don't have a friend in the world, I've got my my nine siblings now. Yeah. And did you reconnect around food, I imagine, immediately too? Yeah. So my my sister, Holden, who's right after me, ultimately just took over the position of being like the eldest daughter and the cook. They actually call her mama number two. Okay. Um, because like the house and the kitchen is really hers because my mom still very much is an entrepreneur and works. And so you know, Holden did a lot of cooking when I, when I first got there. And then shortly after, and just, we started falling back into this groove of like, well, what do you eat when you're at home and how do you cook? So I took over breakfast and started, I kept saying, Oh, this is, this is an American breakfast. I was like making scrambled eggs with potatoes. Uh-huh, sure. um, <laughs> like they were like, Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, so it just, it was like, Oh, let me introduce you to the things that we do because my family, even now, they're not people who will, they're just not going to make like chicken just because they can, or they're not going to make like a salmon something because they can. Like they very much eat Somali food. They crave Somali food. You know, I think now my siblings are like starting to go out to dinners and eat Ethiopian food. And they're like, that's because of you. You introduced us to Ethiopian food, which is really nice because I grew up eating Ethiopian food. Yeah, that is nice. So it was on that trip, right, that you you took an interest in maybe starting a food business, right? Is that kind of when it when it clicked for you? No. So no. I, okay. that was twenty that was two thousand and eight. I kept going back and back and back. And the more I went back, the more I felt like I had found myself. I had found this like place I had been running from all these years. And there started to be this like quietness in my life in that. I was able to finally stand still with me, like just be whole, sit down, live, you know, live in a way that felt like I was really interested in a world much bigger than modeling. 
Because when you start modeling and you're 16 years old, a lot of your identity is based on, you know, things that are really out of your control. Um, yeah. So it was, it was summer of 2014. I had called my mom. I'd call my mom that April. And I said, you know, the season in New York is really slow in June. I'm going to, and it was going to be Ramadan. I said, I'm going to pack up my things. I'm going to rent my apartment out and I'm coming to you indefinitely. Like I'm just coming. Yeah. And she was like, uh, okay. And so again, I fixed the visa, went to Oslo and I stayed, I stayed for four months. And, you know, by now my siblings had grown up and many of them were going to boarding school. Uh, five of them were in boarding school. The, the five youngest from my mom's second marriage were in boarding school. A sister of mine had just gotten married. The other two were living out of the house. So it was really just like, it was my mom, myself, and my older brother in the house, and then our aunt who came to visit. And so it was it was like, I, I became the cook of the house because there, there's yeah. no one in, in the home. And my mom was still working every day. And so I did a lot of cooking, going to the gym, taking my mom food, making smoothies. I'd taken my, my Vitamix with me. And okay. I was telling my mom, I was like, I was like I'm going to start this business where I make green juices. And she uh-huh. says, I feel like everyone is doing that. <laughs> She's like, that idea has come and went. And I was like, what does my, my Somali-Norwegian mom know about food <laughs> businesses in America? And so I just picked up from there, really. I was like, all right, it's, it's time. It's time to, you know, to, to do something different. And that was really inspired by my mom. And she was my biggest champion in the beginning saying things like, you should do this. You should, you know, you're really good at that. You should make that. And I came back home to New York. I had a layover here and I went to Seattle. I was like, I, I'm not going to model anymore. I'm going to start this line of condiments from Somalia and hopefully I'll be able to propel it into something else. Yeah. And I mean, we talk a lot on the show about the um, issues of equity within the food industry, but I imagine the modeling industry is also like, if we're looking at two industries that really struggle with equity and representation, like we're looking at two here, had you soured sort of on modeling? And was that a a reason that sort of pushed you to food too, or another impetus? Um, You know, I had long struggled with the idea that I was, like, I'm not a very competitive person. I'm also not somebody who does really well when I'm not able to control my narrative um, or just like my own work. And so I had long had this relationship with modeling, which is like, I really loved doing it. I loved being in front of the camera. I loved going to work and meeting new people. I loved traveling all over the world, but I didn't love the uncertainty of it. You know, the yeah. I didn't know if I was going to be able to pay the bills. I didn't know if, you know, someone was going to call my agency and say, you know, she's a pound heavier than we thought she'd be. Um, or if someone was going to call and say she's too black or she's not black enough. And so there was this, I think it, modeling puts you in this space of always being insecure. And I didn't like that because I'm not naturally an insecure person. Um and then it had me confronting all these other issues that I was like, these are not my problems. Like, I can't sure. change the the tone of my skin. Um, you yeah. know, I can't change the the curl pattern of my hair. And 
once I realized that I, re- I, I did, I was not going to change the fabric of modeling, that I was not going to walk into an agency and have them rebrand themselves. And I think I was able to wrap, or I was able to wrap the whole idea around my head that I wasn't going to become a supermodel in the way that I thought I was going to when I was younger. And so yeah. I just, I was tired. I was tired of the struggle. I was tired of trying to prove that I, I was something I wasn't. And I think reuniting with my family really helped solidify that whatever all these things that were going on, they weren't a how a problem. They were an industry issue that I was not going to be able to tackle. Sure. Yeah. So you, you make the switch, you sort of launch your, your sauce business takes off. You're running a successful food business. When did you sort of think about the transition or the idea of writing a cookbook? So it was in my business plan. So in 2014, I had to write a business plan. Yeah. I still have the same business plan. Okay. Um, I, I, I was told to write a business plan and in the business plan, it said, create two condiments from Somalia Start a stand at the farmer's market, be in direct contact with your uh, consumers, figure out what it is that they like, get into Whole Foods, start writing a proposal for a cookbook. So now that would take me to like 2016, 2017, start writing a proposal for a cookbook. While doing that, do a pitch deck and pitch yourself to Bon Appetit to be on, on, um, to start cooking in the test kitchen. Uh So that's, that was done at all. (laughs) Like, I, I'm not even kidding you. Like, um, the end of 2018, I like contacted a friend of mine who was working at BA and I was like, listen, I'm, I'm going to do a deck. I'm, I'm going to Hawaii for a few, for a few weeks and I'm going to do a deck and I'm going to send it to Adam. And she was like, great. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, my whole business has always been like that. It was like, be in the test kitchen so that you're able to introduce audience to your food before the cookbook comes out. So when the cookbook comes out, it already has a space to live in. Um, so everything's been really strategic in that way. Yeah. I'm just so impressed with your envision and how like clearly you have executed all of it because you've just like done everything you said you were going to do. No, Brian, it's been sloppy. It's been very sloppy. It's been, you know, it's been hungry nights, sleepless nights, you know, it's, I wish it was, it was like condiments, farmer's market, proposal, pitch deck, you know, investment. It hasn't been, it's been like, I had someone tell me once, they said, you do too many things at once. And I was like, entrepreneur life, what do you think this is? You know? (laughs) Right. But also another, a lesson along the way, right? Like, don't let people, don't let anyone steer you away from your vision because we're, we're living in a time where we need approval so much. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Hawa Hassan. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. There you'll find this week's chance to win a copy of NBB's Kitchen. And you'll also find two recipes from NBB's Kitchen for you to make at home. We love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks every week. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Hawa Hassan, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast 
podcast featuring interviews with your favorite cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club and virtual dinner party series, which picks up again next year in 2021. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit ProstateOnePerDay.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now back to our conversation with Hawa Hassan, author of In BB's Kitchen. Did you know from the beginning when you when you knew you wanted to write a cookbook, did you know what shape it would take? Like, did you know that you wanted to feature stories of African grandmothers, for instance? Or like, how did that process sort of evolve? Oh, yeah. I think Julia Tertian posted something on her Instagram a few days ago that I sent her in 2017. It was a text message. And it said exactly what the book is now. Wow, okay. Uh, but, you know, that really was inspired from my perspective of not seeing anyone who looked like me being spoken to. I was watching all of these big food shows and I kept thinking, where are the women? Where are the women? No one is speaking to the women. And so I, I just, I set out to do just in the same way that I had in the condiments. Once I started doing the condiments, I was like, oh my God, there's such a white space in food. Yeah. And not like white people, but just like a, a blank space that no one was taken up. And I was like, there, there's no way that I cannot not tell these stories. There's no way that I, I should write a cookbook just about Somalia or just about one thing when I can offer this opportunity to people who look like me all over Africa. Yeah. And the title in Bibi's Kitchen for folks who maybe are unfamiliar, Bibi is the Swahili word for grandmother, right? Yes, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, did that come easily? Like, did did the title come easily? And you also talk a little bit in the book about language and the importance of sort of using the term Bibi, like in the title. And it's not it's not a subtitle, right? right? Like, it's it's very right. much centering these women. Oh, totally. I mean, when. I started on this book, I went on Pinterest and uh-huh. I did, I did maybe like 10 to 12 photos of each country. And it was women carrying water, women, you know, planting things, women putting um, clay on their face at the beach. Like it was just colorful and full of women and full of food. And for me, I was like, if that book, if the book that I have in my head can look like that, it would be a disservice to not even call the food what it is. Like, I'm going to call loho loho. I'm going to call sugo sugo. If I'm talking about grandmothers, I, I'm going to use the word bibi, you know, like Swahili is the most spoken language in East Africa. Like, why, why would I do it such a disservice when the whole inside is very reflective of these countries and then just say in grandmother's kitchen? Right. So. Luckily for me, you know, I had people working on this project that did not push back on any of these big ideas I had. They were like, okay. Yeah. In terms of your publishing team. 
Right. You decided to focus on the eight African countries that border the Indian Ocean. Is there a reason you decided to focus on those? And can you talk a little bit for folks maybe who haven't spent much time with the book yet about what sort of ties them together culinarily? You know, the Indian Ocean is the the backbone of the spice trade. And I really wanted to spell out for people that the spices in Africa are also in your pantry. If you know about Indian cooking, then you won't have any trouble with most African cuisine. And since Africa is not monolithic, let me spell out what that looks like for you. And so that's where the idea really came was just to use the Indian Ocean as a backdrop and as a thread, but then to take it a step further and say, you have a grandmother, I have a grandmother, you know, she's the matriarchy in my life. I'm sure she's the matriarchy in yours. Here's what ours make. How about yours? I hope you see yourself in this book. You know, like, uh-huh. <laughs> really, it was it. I mean, I, I think no matter what it is that you're introducing, it really does have to happen from a place of tenderness and a place of softness. And I, more than anything, just wanted people to feel like they themselves could see their grandmother in this book, you know, their yeah. baby in this book. And so, There's a lot of, you know, marketing things that are in this book from a business perspective, but the nicest thing is that it's all so authentic. There's no, you know, there, there is no gimmicks in here, but it's a, it's, it's very much spelled out. You know, it's like backdrop Indian ocean, eight African countries that hug it, recipes and stories, you know, explorations of recipes and stories. Yeah. And sometimes I think in that process, like not necessarily even on the author's side, but through the entire publishing process, that desire to have a book feel accessible can sometimes Mm -hmm. become like a, a process of whitewashing the actual content. And so I think that's a really tough place to sort of navigate in the cookbook industry as it is today, like how to do that. So it feels like you, like you say, you have a grandmother, I have a grandmother. Where can we find commonality there without whitewashing the content of the book? Exactly. What I find so eerie is that when a person is the authority on a cuisine or when they're the authority on a culture, when they let in another group of people into that space, and then those people get into a situation or into a place of control where they're like, no, I don't think it'll be nice like that. You know, I think that's where like then comes the the integrity part. If your vision is being executed in a way that you do not want, if it is being dumbed down for an audience that you feel can be educated and will step into this new space, you've got to be willing to walk away, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, you can be attached. Like I, I have, I, I, I don't have a lot of attachments outside of the people that are in my life, but I, if 10 speed wanted to do this book differently, I would have, I would have left it on the table. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I imagine would have been hard, but I know you were also very intentional about the team that you built, like the, in terms of who you were able to control, like choosing your photographer, choosing to work with Julia as your co-author. Like, I believe you had an all female creative team. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that was intentional. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think Howie Khan is the only man that touched this book. And that's okay. because he's a dear friend of mine. And, you know, I Howie and I have been in this together for so long that I was like, I, I have to have you write a blurb, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, How do you think that impacted the project? Because that's not that's not common in the cookbook industry, unfortunately. I think everybody who worked on this project and rightfully so feels like it is their baby. You know, the investment was greater. It was, 
there was so much love and respect and integrity and honesty and collaboration and, you know, vetoing things. And it was, you know, it, it's eight countries. It's 16 grandmothers. It's 75 recipes. Had it not been a group of women, for me anyways, it would have felt like it would have been an impossible fate. Where like yeah. with this group of people, it felt like everything was possible, you know? And like, there were no's. It was like, I want illustrations. I want math. I want this. And it was like, okay, we can get that done. Um, uh-huh. So I'm looking forward to what's next for Africa. I'm looking forward to what's next for regional cooking. You know, I, I hope that this book ushers in a new a new audience and a new way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a groundbreaking book in so many ways. And and by publishing it, you're not you're not letting the groundbreaking nature of it be subtle or behind the scenes because right on I think maybe page two or page three of your introduction, you say explicitly to every reader of this book that this book fills, I'm quoting here, a deep and vast void in the contemporary cookbook market. And you uh-huh. sort of outline some of the real challenges in the cookbook industry. So did was that a a thought for you too of like the consumer needing to sort of understand that as well? Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, that bit is from our proposal and it was really trying to sell to the publisher. Like here is a white space. Here are the people who have been published that are similar to who I am. Right. Here are what bookstores are looking for. Here's, I mean, there was, there was all sorts of studies done, you know, Right. To just to get the publisher to believe that this opportunity was one that they can get behind. And then, you know, a lot of that is in the intro of the book, because I I want the audience to know. And I think everybody that worked on this book knows this now is that this is not what's, you know, what's trendy and next. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. what what's here to stay? Yeah, it's really back to the roots of a lot of these cuisines. And that's on period. You can edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously you have been working on this book for years from the idea of the book to actually building it takes a lot of time, but of course it's being published in this moment of like major social unrest in the United States broadly, like politically across the country. Also like this moment that we're in in food media, um, we talked a little bit, or you sort of referenced Bon Appetit and the sort of implosion at the test kitchen there and some of the exposure of the the issues that I think were not so secret, but many folks did not know that, that are sort of emblematic of like broader issues of equity and representation in food media. So obviously this book is not like designed because of that, these moments that we're in, but do you feel like it's a statement in some way? Do you think it does it fit into sort of any of these narratives that we're really sort of centering in a lot of our conversations today? I don't know that if it fits into a lot of the narratives that are being created right now. I, and I don't even know if the food industry is in a space where they're able to wrap their head around and what needs to be done next. Right. Because there are a couple of things happening simultaneously. One is like the restaurant industry has completely gone under. Right. Yeah. And so a lot of people who are who are the gatekeepers and the authority in food are really dealing with that right now. And then you've got other people that are able to create content like BA still and you know without getting too much into it or without even aligning myself cuz you got you got to think when I was at the test kitchen the reason why I was able to walk away from it was because I was like what I have coming is so much more greater 
than what they want me to be a part of. Right. So like I was able yeah. to walk away and, and thankfully graciously and say like, I'm being tokenized here. This is not fun. I don't like, I, I don't, I don't want to be a part of any space in which I'm not allowed to be my full self. Right. Yeah. But I think this book itself stands alone and, you know, to use your words is groundbreaking in that it's made with love and it's made with integrity and it's, it's, it's so inclusive, you know, there, the, the language in this book does not exclude a white audience. It does not exclude a black American audience. It, it's literally like, let's sit down and learn together. Let's build longer tables and shorter fences. And I think as long as we, the audience, and I, I'm going to throw myself in there, as long as we continue to give spaces like BA all the power, people who don't want to usher in new cuisine, people who want to keep the gate closed, people who you know want to put the folks that they like in position to succeed, then we'll always be doing ourselves a disservice. And I, I what I, my wish for all of us in food is to say, I have the power where I'm going to put my energy. I have the power of where I'm going to spend my money. I can follow whoever I want on Instagram and consume their content without them having to have, you know, the, the backing of BA, which sad to say, but these are people who are like, we're going to put perfume on the issue. Yeah. Like, enjoy, right. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> have fun. Yeah, it's frightening yeah. to watch. It's frightening to watch. It's so sad to see because it's like, God, they were a leading entity in food, you know? <laughs> yeah, it it is. Yeah, it's it's shocking and it's also not at the same time. Like, it's also yeah. just sad. I I just feel I I feel so sad for a lot of people who still feel like they're an authority and they're a company that they want to get behind. I'm like be so much more powerful on your own. Yeah. I, I know we're running out of time. So I want to ask you two quick questions. I have so many questions I could ask you, but I'm going to ask you two final quick questions before we play a, a quick little game. So you and Julia ask these BBs many of the same questions in your interviews with them. So I wanted to pose just two of them to you in closing. <sighs> First, I'm wondering how you define community, which is a question that you ask of all of these, these women, these matriarchs. Community for me is a group of people who are in alignment and in action together. So for me, it's, you know, if I'm, if I'm thinking of it from my perspective, it's showing up for people who need you. Um, it's from cooking together. It's, you know, creating shelters for one another. It's, it's action. It's, it's, um, it's people who are moving in the same direction, you know? Yeah. It's a great answer. Second question that you ask many of these BBs, what are you most proud of? What are you oh, most I, proud of? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> Did you? Um, yeah, because it's it's like one that I, like at every BB, I was like, tell me so that I can like have a better life and look back and be like, that's what I'm most proud of. Um, right now, like in this moment, I'm really proud of how I've lived my life. I'm proud to have been born to a woman who sees the world as a lot bigger than herself. Um, you know, a mother who's been a source of strength for so many people, myself included. And so, you know, the way I live my life is really a reflection of who she is. And I oftentimes ask myself when I'm in a difficult position, like, how would Hoya have you do this? That's what we call mom in our language. And I move from that space. And so I think, yeah, I would say how I've lived my life and just being my mom's daughter. 
Yeah, that's a great answer. That's really something to be proud of. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought um, we would imagine that we're taking a boat trip along the East African coast and we're, we're traveling along the Indian Ocean and we're just okay. stopping along the way in okay. these countries profiled in this book. And we're stopping to cook with different BBs. And okay. we're going to, we have these decks of cards. Um, so these are vegetables. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> we have proteins, which are also self-explanatory. Flavors, which are herbs and spices. And then if you want to get sort of wild, we have a secret ingredient deck too that's just sort of sometimes super obscure, sometimes just sort of random. But let's let's play like a couple rounds and we'll pick one of these cards and we'll see if something comes to mind. Like there's a particular dish that that would be used in in this country or a way to use that ingredient. So do you want a vegetable, a protein, a flavor? A vegetable. Vegetable. Okay. There's many vegetables in this book. Yes, let's shuffle and pick. We have beets. Would we find beets along this coast? Will we find beets? So, you know who eats a lot of beets is Eritreans. They eat it cold with cottage cheese and a little bit of barbure. They eat it on the side of their anjera. I don't know if you've seen it at Ethiopian restaurants. I I haven't seen beets at Ethiopian restaurants before. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, let's do a it's protein. Not in, it's not in our it's not in our book, but they eat beets in in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Okay, awesome. Let's draw a protein. Oh, nuts. How might we oh. find nuts used? Oh, well, so lots of nuts are eaten in places like Tanzania, and so you can eat them. You eat them before or like before a big meal or in between a meal. You know, you can eat them with your tea for a snack. A lot of nuts are sautéed with like cumin and cardamom and cinnamon. Uh-huh. So there's lots of toasting of nuts and eaten as a snack along the coast. But may, I would say, like, if I had to pick a place, I would say that in Zanzibar, a lot of nuts are eaten. And let's do a flavor. Okay, and we'll just sort of go in order. Okay, nutmeg is what we drew. Ooh, so nutmeg along. A lot of the spices that come from the Indian Ocean is used in so much of our cooking, um, whether it be in our hawaj spice, um, which is the backbone of a lot of Somali cooking. So nutmeg is used as a seasoning in many of these dishes. Uh, we have a lamp recipe in here that nutmeg is a part of. But yeah, nutmeg is eaten all over all over the coast. Awesome. Okay, now let's let's close with the last round and we'll do a secret ingredient. Let's see um, what we end up with here. Okay, draw from the middle. Okay, we have Thai bird chilies, but maybe we just like broaden this into like, since this is um, specific to the Thai chili, like where would we find chilies? Inside the barbure. Come on now. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dry chilies inside the barbure. Um, yes dried and ground yeah dried and ground well thank you so much for joining us this was so much fun and thank you for playing our little game thank you brian this was fun and that's our show for today thank you so much for listening as always you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website saltandspine.com there you'll find two recipes from in bb's kitchen remember if you like hearing from your favorite authors on salt and spine and i hope you do please click subscribe wherever you're listening you can also leave us a rating on itunes and join the salt and spine community and support our show at patreon.com Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. 
Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 